Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And I'm Susie Dennison, a Senior Fellow at ECFR. And together we're moderating this year's summer series of podcasts in which we're looking at what we're calling the Great Reset, where we'll look at the prospects for rethinking the UK's relationship with the rest of Europe. So for this very special episode. We want to talk to a guest who's been, I think, one of the closest observers of the Brexit psychodrama over the last seven years, Amij Rahman. He is uh, not only the managing director for Europe at the Eurasia Group, where he helps clients navigate a lot of the macro politics of Brussels and its interaction with um, uh, EU member states across a whole variety of, of, of policy areas. But before he went into uh, the Eurasia Group, he was uh, a civil servant in the British Treasury. So has dealt with a lot of these issues from inside government as well. And we were hoping to talk to him, particularly in this episode, about some of the, the economic and financial issues and the politics around them in this complicated relationship. I think, Susie, you're going to start the questioning. Yes, yeah, so Mitch, we know, we're all obviously avid followers of your Twitter account. And um, so we know that you've been back and forth to, uh, to Brussels quite a lot lately. So um, I wanted to kick off by asking you, is your sense that this excitement about the possibility um, of uh, a new era in UK-EU relations is largely on the UK side in terms of the potential there? Or, um, or do you feel that from a Brussels, from an institutional perspective, there is, again, appetite for, for thinking about this? So it's great to be with you both. Um, I don't think appetite's the right way to describe where the Europeans are. And that's just a consequence of the number of issues that they're currently firefighting. I think, you know, we've got about a year left before the mandate of this European Commission expires. And before the mandate concludes, there's a number of really important intra-EU policy priorities they want to strike agreement on. I think the most important is probably reform of the EU fiscal framework, big question around political support and commitment for Ukraine, uh, opening the accession process for Kiev at the December European Council. There's some peripheral stuff left to do on the EU response to the Inflation Reduction Act, and so on and so forth. And so I don't think there's appetite per se, but there is an expectation that we're going to see government change in the UK either in October next year or January 2025, and that the Labour team is going to come in and they're going to try and reset and move quickly to, to refresh relations. So I think there's an expectation that that will happen. And but from the point of view of the sort of the opportunity um, uh, in that eventuality, um, I mean, obviously, we've all seen um, from the UK point of view, economically, there's everything to gain um, uh, from, uh, uh, from, from trying to sort of unblock some of the issues and, and, and cooperate more closely. Is that something that, that you can see? Are there sort of areas where, um, as a collective, we, we are missing out at the moment from the, from the state of play? Where the UK is missing out on closer cooperation cooperation with the EU. Rather from the from the European side, I think we can maybe take it as a given from the UK point of view. Honestly, I think there is a desire to do a lot more cooperation on the foreign policy side. And there is a desire to ensure that the withdrawal agreement, the protocol and now the Windsor framework are being properly implemented. I think they're the two big, if you were to ask me, demands on the European side as they anticipate a change in government, they're the two most obvious things people will say. On the economic side, there's obviously an asymmetry. I think that will be more of an offensive interest for the UK government. 
and the appetite and willingness of Europe to do stuff will ultimately be, I think, a consequence of the UK government doing a number of things first. And most importantly, um, I think with respect to Windsor, making sure that deal is being properly and fully implemented. So should we look at the UK side? I mean, we know the sort of macro figures about the damage which Brexit has done to the British economy uh, in the aggregate and their various different estimates of that, but it's usually around 5% of GDP, but you can maybe give us more detail on that. But if you could you talk a bit more um, in more granular detail about some of the different ways that, that Britain has suffered the, the, the most as a result of Brexit and what some of the, the um, things which uh, a new government might want to change uh, might look might be. Yes, yeah, so I think Mark obviously, you know, um, being outside of the EU's two most important economic institutions has come with a meaningful economic cost. That's the customs union that eliminates eliminates tariff barriers on trade between members of the customs union, and then it's the single market, which is obviously has obviously created big regulatory barriers to trade between. Uh, the UK and the EU. Um, I think the Labour team, you know, the shadow front bench is very pro-EU, but they recognise the need to be cautious. Being cautious means the Labour uh, team can't commit and won't commit, certainly not in the run-up to an election and probably on the other side of an election, to doing anything to address those structural challenges that come from not being a member of the customs union or the single market, which means we are facing uh, more friction because of um, customs processes. We are we have a we have a zero tariff uh, trade agreement with the EU, so there are not tariffs per se, but the whole customs process is a lot more bureaucratic. That creates friction for UK firms doing business in the EU, and then there are of course a huge number of regulatory barriers uh, between the two sides. I think what the Labour team will do when they come in is move very quickly to an alignment agreement with the EU on a cross-section of issues that will effectively make the Irish Sea border disappear. And the most obvious one is a veterinary agreement where, you know, I think if you look at the, 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 the controls that take place between the UK and the EU down the Irish Sea, if you were to do an, agree- an SPS agreement, a veterinary alignment agreement between the two sides, you effectively eradicate 90% or so of those controls. So there's an immediate quick win, a low-hanging fruit there that I think the Labour team will seek to implement. They will do that quickly. They'll move quite quickly, I think, to do that. It's, you know, it's being talked about in public. I don't think there'd be any surprises. There's a number of other things um, that kissed on that before we go on is that basically something which the a, a late which a, a british government can just do unilaterally they'll say we're basically going to align our regulatory frameworks fully with eu ones or is it something that needs to be negotiated i think i think it would be quite straightforward it would be for the uk government to say we agree to effectively follow uh, eu regulations and rules in these sectors of the economy and i think in particular as i say that would relate to food and agriculture and veterinary goods so the uk effectively would make a proactive commitment to align to eu standards in those areas and that would as i say eliminate a tremendous amount of the friction that you see uh, between the two sides and i think you know I don't, 90% is a number, kind of back of the envelope calculation. But for goods trade, a lot of the friction is surrounding uh, food, agriculture and veterinary products. And so if the UK agrees to proactively and unilaterally align, I don't think there'd be any major pushback from the European side to us doing that. Obviously, would that help the rest of the UK? 
or would that just be a Northern Irish benefit? I mean, I think it would create benefits for the entire UK. I think um, for exporters in Great Britain that are trading not only with Northern Ireland, but the broader single market, eliminating that friction down the Irish Sea is, I think, you know, is a no-brainer. The Tories obviously don't want to do it because they want to be outside of the regulatory orbit of the EU. I don't think the Labour team will have any such any such concerns. But I think, Mark, that's a given that they're going to do that, right? I don't, I'm not saying anything particularly insightful because they've been quite clear that that's something that they would seek to do early on in their term. I think alongside that, they would probably look for a mobility agreement for certain sectors, um, certainly for universities and for students, maybe other areas where there are gaps in the UK labour market. Um, they would seek to have some form of uh, bilateral agreement with the EU to facilitate um, um, you know, the, the UK addressing some of those labour shortages and some of those gaps. There's a lot of discussion around two-way mutual recognition, um, you know, this begins to feel a little bit like the UK government is looking for cake, right? They're picking different things that they want. But I think there would be some appetite and willingness on the European side to say these, these are obvious areas of friction and one can think about addressing those areas of friction um, because it would make sense for both sides. Um, and do you think that mobility is one of those areas where um, the UK is not only a demander? I mean, clearly there's a strong interest from a sort of a, a policy point of view, although this is quite difficult politically in the, in the UK context um, uh, to, to come to some kind of um, agreement on, on that front. But presumably this is also something which would be um, not unhelpful in, in many other EU states as well. So potentially kind of one area where... Um, we, we have the UK would have some capital. Yes, and I and I think it wouldn't necessarily. You know, it's not necessarily about a trade on the same issue. I think there is a tremendous amount of interest on the European side for institutionalized cooperation with the UK in the foreign policy space. And so, if the UK was very forward leaning on that question, as is often the case in Europe, issues get linked across different areas. And so, I think. Keir Starmer would be very forward-leaning on a UK-EU security pact covering things like energy, where there's tremendous interest on the European side, space, new technology, defence. And if the UK were very forward-leaning on that issue, perhaps there would be a bit more give on the mobility side uh, from the EU. So you wouldn't necessarily have a trade in that one specific area, but across across these areas that I'm talking about. Um I think so. I think that's all a given. The more interesting question is how much further Labour would go and how much quickly they would move beyond what we've just talked about. Because I think everything we've just talked about, they would seek to implement very, very quickly. I think they would seek to do it before the TCA review. There's no agreement on the European side about when that TCA review will take place. If you talk to member states, they say 2025. If you talk trade and cooperation agreement, trade and cooperation agreement, exactly, which is up for formal review in either 2025 or 2026, depending upon who you talk to. So there is some sense that a lot of the things that we're talking about can only get addressed in that context. I think actually what would happen is Labour will come in, they'll move very quickly on the issues that we've talked about. They won't talk about it. They won't say much about it in public, but in private, there will be a tremendous amount of ambition. And once you've done some of these things that I would describe as lower hanging fruit, the more interesting question is, how much further can they go and how, how quickly would 
they'd be willing to, to move. And that's really a question around institutional links, not necessarily customs union or single market, but something a bit more structural. Can you unpack that a little bit? It gets hard, Mark, to give to give this form. Look, what you do here on the European side, and I think this is genuine, I think there is a genuine desire to reset and ease the relationship between the two sides. I think there's a genuine desire to do that in Germany. I even think there's an appetite to do it in France. Less in Brussels, Lucy, hence my response to your first question. The Commission, I think, as guardian of the treaties, remains very strong on this point. But I think just politically, there's a desire in some of the key member states to move this relationship on. And they see that a Labour government is going to come in and potentially create an opportunity to do that. Now, the first thing the UK will need to do is implement the uh, the withdrawal agreement, the protocol and the Windsor framework. That's about That's about stuff like you know, really sharing the data, you know, what's coming across the border. Does the EU have real-time visibility on stuff that's coming across? Is the UK being very forward-leaning and sharing that kind of information with UK customs authorities, etc.? Assuming the EU is happy with how the existing agreements are being implemented, they're being fully implemented and consistently implemented, then you move to the second phase, which is all the stuff that we've just talked about, Assuming there's broad and quick agreement on some of the easy stuff where the UK has to make the bigger move, for example, alignment, I then think you're in a new space, a third space, a third phase, where there is some very early discussion. And and saying there's a discussion is probably putting a bit more form around what's actually happening, but some very initial thinking about a potential third way for the UK and the EU. That may not be the customs union or the single market, but maybe a genuine third way, a new relationship, a new context for the two sides. It sounds crazy, Mark. I can see from your expression, you may think this is unbelievable because it's not been the mantra on the European side consistently through the entire negotiating process. But I think there was a reason for that motivation in 2016, which was, Brexit is a huge risk to the integrity of the EU. And there is and there's Luckily, a national front in the AF in France and the AFD in Germany have disappeared as political forces. So um so the French and the Germans will be totally relaxed about making Brexit look like a success now. Yeah, I mean you've got the AFD at parity with the Social Democrats and Le Pen with twenty-five percent consistent polling and a big concern. You know, she's like a heart attack. You survive one or the second, but at some point she's going to get you and she'll be French president. But I think the the point is, whether it's the AFD, whether it's Vox in Spain, whether it's Maloney in Italy, whether it's Le Pen in France, everybody recognises that Brexit has been a total and utter disaster. And there is absolutely no willingness or appetite in any member state to replicate what the EU has done. And you see that reflected in their political interventions, in their manifestos. And that has created a bit of space, political space on the European side. I was slightly pulling your leg there. (laughs) With the third way for a bit longer, though. So basically, because people, um, I mean, you know, the, the one... Um, model which people talk about a lot is the Swiss model as a kind of third way in that they're not um, uh, you know they have something which is more bespoke which is more complicated um, and which is very hated in Brussels and you know the one thing which which um, every, any uh, self-respecting co- uh, commission official uh, has been saying for the last few years is like that 
<laughs> they'll never do it again. And that it was a big mistake uh, allowing Switzerland to have a kind of system like this. But is that what you have in mind? Something a bit like the Swiss sort of uh, model where you have a, a series of different agreements, which is a kind of lattice of different things rather than having something clean like the Norwegian model where they're basically uh, agreeing to to be full uh, uh, well, not full because there are some carve outs, obviously, in terms of, of, of some of the, the single market and the ECI for, for, for Norway as well, because they're not in the common fisheries policy, but, but by and large, that uh, they, they have signed up to all the institutions. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, Mark, I, you know, I mean a genuine third way. Yeah. So, not Norway or Switzerland, but something ultimately bespoke because the nature of the relationship with the UK would need to be bespoke. If you were back in in your old job working for the Treasury with Susie, actually, because Susie used to work in the Treasury, I think, even at the same time that you were there. If you were to both trying to kind of come up with the optimal model from a British perspective, what would this third way look like? I mean, it's a it's a it's a mosaic and a patchwork of elements of the single market without all of the requirements that ecosystem necessarily entails. Right. So whether that's a, a bit more flex on the freedom of movement question, budget payments, ECJ oversight, you know, again, I think it, it's, it's very difficult to articulate a priori what the template will be. But the macro point, and I think this is important, is that the European Union itself is about to embark on a process of major reform as a result of their commitment that they'll make in December to absorb Ukraine. That's creating all kinds of openings and opportunities to rethink their relations with third countries, countries that will soon be admitted in. And of course, in that context, the UK. And, and so, you know, Mark, I don't, I don't know how to describe what this will be, but it's, I've had it set, I've, I've had it put to me by very senior people in Germany, in France, in the Netherlands, in other countries that one could imagine a conversation not immediately, right? I'm talking about this third phase. Yeah, yeah. no, no, this is great. Listen, we're, this is a podcast and it's about looking at the future and suspending disbelief. So actually I'm trying to encourage you to be more open rather than rather than to defend it. I think it's, it, it, it's perfectly, but just be interesting to know what it looks like because part of the point of the EU, the way it's been built, is it's a very complicated package deal where it's quite difficult to disaggregate it because actually it, in many ways it's, it is a package. And what we're talking about is, is disaggregating it. Obviously, there is a history of doing that a bit. The UK had a bunch of opt-outs from the Euro, from Schengen, from other areas. Denmark's had some opt-outs. But this is something which is bigger than that because what we're talking about is, is opting into some areas. Um, the single market is particularly complicated from a British perspective because there's so much political neuralgia around the idea of freedom of movement. But that is quite an important part of the package in terms of um, access to the market that, that is not just about capital and goods, but that, that people is, is one of the important freedoms um, that, that gets involved. So just trying to think, even if, if um, people in Brussels said no to it, what could a British government be asking for, which would be sort of imaginative, which would get around the political um, elephant traps of, of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of being in the single market um, around free movement, but would still, you know, 
be plausibly attractive enough for the for, for the EU twenty seven, um, and not just look like pure cakeism. It's a very tough question, Mark. Honestly, it's a very tough question to begin to conceptualise what this universe is that we're leaning into and trying to describe. When I think about, I'm going to just talk about Ukraine for a second because I think it's important and related. You know, there's a, there's there's some discussion in 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 Brussels. I I think about you know if Ukraine were to join the EU, maybe we don't do something in a big bang, right? You've got to somehow desensitise member states that are very worried about in 10, 15, 20 years' time, another nine or 10 countries joining the bloc in one big go. And the way you do that would be to completely reform and revitalize the enlargement process, right? So imagine a universe where you have countries that are outside the EU, but make a decision to, as they work work through their accession process, close a certain chapter. As they close a certain chapter, they participate in a specific council formation. In that council formation, they don't get to make decisions, but they can facilitate and help shape decisions. And they, in that context, benefit a little bit from community instruments, right? And so you 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 move to this kind of really interesting hybrid model where you're partially integrating countries that are part of this accession process, Right. Now, there are people in in Brussels that will tell you that's complete garbage. If you look at the Lisbon Treaty, it's very clear this has to happen in one go. Only four members of the EU can sit in the European Council. You You can't implement this model. There are others that completely disagree and think just given the task that the EU is facing in terms of absorbing Ukraine and the the countries in the Western Balkans, they're going to have to be much more innovative. In, in that same spirit, in that same vein, one could potentially think about a similar process for the UK, right? And so... Or could you even think of the UK playing a constructive role in that conversation? I mean, because what you're effectively talking about, right, is building up sort of different sorts of partnerships around different areas as, as, as chapters are closed. So, you know, is is there a world in which if the UK sort of plays ball in terms of implementation of current obligations, alignment on standards and so on, that confidence is built up, gradu- built up gradually and there's a kind of observer role distance participation in, in those discussions and that the UK kind of becomes sort of part of the incentive in a way for, for, for that sort of broken down model. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think, um, I think that could potentially be, uh, that could potentially be one way to think about it. The EPC is obviously a forum where there could be some opportunities for the UK to participate and help build confidence, uh, with others in the EU. But if we're thinking about something more meaningful and something structural, and we've got to move away from, these very unhelpful labels around customs union and obligations and single market and obligations, then then something very bespoke, something very unique to the particular circumstances of the UK, um, I think could over the medium to long term potentially potentially be doable. And that I think is a consequence and a function of the fact the EU that we know and understand today is going to look very, very different in 10 years' time. And that's happening because of this commitment to Ukraine. And so as the EU goes through that reform process and it thinks and, and it thinks about ways in which it can revitalize itself in that context, 
there will be new openings, offerings and opportunities for bilateral cooperation with the UK that I think are not customs union and single market, but something completely different. Still very abstract, Mark. I still don't think it answers your question. I don't know. I think it's really interesting. So but if we kind of looked at it, so basically what you do is you'd use the, the old accession process with the chapters. You'd look at whether there are things that you could kind of close. I mean, in a way, you know, people have been trying to do elements of this in the Balkans and, and as part of the partnership and other areas, looking at the energy union, looking at, uh, at visas and things like that, that you basically have these these sort of quid for... So, uh, you know, one low-hanging fruit is obviously on the foreign policy side, because there is not very much key there. Presumably, you just need to develop a few uh, agreements to adhere to some sanctions and stuff like that, and then you can maybe take part in the in the Foreign Affairs Council as an observer. Um <laughs> Um, you need to move to QMV, <laughs> which I don't think they will. But look, there's a big question about whether Ukraine um, and uh, the Western Balkan countries will get in the EU or not. But I suspect that um, that will come before QMV is implemented in the um, <laughs> in the Foreign Affairs Council. But anyway, um, but if we sort of imagined it, what do you think the areas, the most attractive areas, would be? So from a from an EU perspective, foreign policy is obviously. Um, and defence is obviously both attractive, but also kind of problematic, particularly on the defence side, as we saw with Galileo and, and uh, some of the other areas. But um, energy is obviously something which which is very relevant in the light of Ukraine and where, you know, I, I imagine there might be some interest from the British side. But what, what would you think the areas might be if one wanted to find a few kind of key areas? Yeah, yeah the obvious one, obvi- the obvious one, Mark, would be, you know, with the single market, um Something in the area of services or financial services, um, that would obviously be a big, I think, offensive interest um, for uh, the UK, for the UK government. There'd also be, I think, tremendous interest on the European side to do something in that regard. Um, you know, to the extent one can do more stuff uh, with the TCA, um, you know, can there be a bit more ambition in terms of... Um, you know, kind of broadening out that agreement, perhaps I think there'd be some interest there. Energy is an interest that you've talked about. I think there'd be some interest uh, in more bilateral cooperation there. Um, so, you know, I think I think across all of those areas, really. Um, and in terms of the likelihood of, of this happening, what sorts of things could make it more versus less likely for that to happen? I think, Sam, what, what seems to me that you're saying that Ukraine will have to do a lot of the heavy lifting on this because it, it does mean that the status quo is increasingly untenable if we are really going to move forward with Ukraine. But um, there must be a danger that things get bogged down quite quickly. You know, the, the easiest thing to do is to open chapters, isn't it? Closing them is a lot more difficult. So if we start the process in December, there'll be a, a lot of fanfare and excitement around it, but it, it won't necessarily lead anywhere quickly enough for, for Britain to benefit from it in the in the kind of early years of a new government. Well, so, so Mark, there's a bunch of stuff that I think are Ukraine related, and that whole question around EU reform as a result of Ukraine, and then there's a bunch of stuff completely independent from Ukraine that'll be important for this question. On on the Ukraine stuff, look, I think um, given the counteroffensive is going badly, and nobody believes uh, once the counteroffensive has been implemented, Ukraine will have recaptured the territory. Uh, uh, you know, they're currently contesting with the Russians. I think there will be a need to, to, to reinforce political support and commitment to the Ukrainians. And I think that a lot of that momentum, I think, will travel into the next commission's mandate. So I think you will begin to see 
you know, if you think about candidate status, right, they got candidate status in two weeks, that's remarkable. And they're moving from candidate status to opening a session negotiations in absolutely no time at all. This is historically unprecedented for any country that's been a candidate, the speed at which this process is moving forward. And I think it gains more momentum as a result of the fact the war is stuck, moving to a horrible equilibrium, and they're not getting movement on the NATO side, as the communique demonstrated yesterday, and the G7 statement suggests today. Second thing I'd say is this is going to be just, I think, the single biggest part of the next commission's mandate. You see this huge discussion on absorption capacity will be discussed at the October UCO, discussed at the December European Council. It's going to be the single biggest political and strategic issue that member states are thinking about through the next mandate. And that will interact with effect. And I think ultimately influence the pace of Ukraine's accession. Of course, they'll want to make sure the process has integrity. Ukraine's doing the reforms it, it needs to do, et cetera, et cetera. But there's going to be a lot of momentum around the Ukraine question because of reconstruction, because of the need to maintain impetus behind reform, because of the need, you know, Mark, if you're talking about the budgetary implications of Ukraine joining, you've got to address that in the context of the next MFF. Next MFF is 2028 to 2035, which means you've got to start thinking about these questions in 2025, 2026. This is pretty near-term stuff. All of that stuff, I think, begins to have an influence on the way they're thinking about the institutional organisation of the EU and at some point could begin to interact with this UK question. So so that's... The UK becoming a net contributor to EU budgets through some sort of Norway-style payment yeah, system. Like I, I, I think, you know, the budgetary payments are a meaningful contribution the UK could make for single market access. Yeah. Um, but politically, can you see that happening? Because that was my kind of flip side question. What could go wrong on the UK side in terms of the... Um, right. So so, so, uh, so then the things that are not related to Ukraine, I think, number one, lay, you know, Labour's, you know, Labour, you see what they're saying on fiscal policy, right, guys? They're basically coming in. I've had clients asking me yesterday and the day before, look, what's the difference between a, a sixth term Tory government in the first two years and... Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer in the first two years, given Labour's effectively saying they're going to do what the Tories are doing for the first two years of their term. No difference. Right? Well, there's no punchline. I thought this was no, a joke. But, no, but, you know, but it's, an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting question, right? That they're going to inherit a really difficult situation in terms of public services, in terms of fiscal space, in terms of the economic outlook. So you've got to, you've got to, the first question, of course, is how is Labour going to perform? How is Keir Starmer going to perform? You know, do they get over the, the constraints within the first two years of their mandate and do things begin to open up? So that's one question. The second, of course, is public opinion more generally. You know, you're seeing, obviously, public opinions very strong on Brexit being a disaster. We're now beginning to see a bit more consistently support for rejoin. The public Does public opinion continue to move in that direction? And is there a connection between, number one, Brexit being a disaster, and number two, there being appetite to rejoin? Assuming, you know, Starmer does does well through the first two years, things begin to open up, public opinion begins to move in his direction. And I think you move into the belief that there will be a second term. That's when I think the question of institutional links becomes a bit more credible and a bit more serious. All the Labour Party strategists I talk to tell me, in the first term, we basically want to demonstrate the benefits of closer cooperation with the EU, people to people, business to business, 
the cultural stuff, the foreign policy stuff, you know, this is good for the UK. And if you can create... So you create the facts on the ground before yeah. you start to broach the difficult institutions. Exactly. Questions. If you can create an evidence base that demonstrates cooperation with the EU is in the UK national interest, then in a second term, maybe you begin to get more ambition around that question of institutional links. And if the institutional links are innovative, given what's happening on the European side, then you could really begin to see some potentially interesting political space for cooperation and collaboration. Some people in Labour uh, uh, say, you know, maybe you can get to that at the back end of a first term. You know, could you really push the envelope and be really ambitious? But I think given the fiscal and economic constraints and given how cautious they're, they're likely to be on those questions, it's hard to see in the first term. But in a second, possibly, and in a third, if not in the second, then definitely, right? Okay, well, I think we're we're running out of time um, on this, but maybe just to, to bring the discussion to an end, are there any sort of key decision points over, over the next, few years which you think we should be, be bearing in mind we mentioned the the tca and the, the the need to kind of review that on the enlargement timetable it is going very fast but obviously we don't know exactly what's going to happen post december in terms of chapters being opened the budget process you mentioned are there other kind of big things which are going on which could have a, a kind of impact on all of these things so, so mark the first thing i'd say is obviously the base case just for the uk outlook Right. All of this is predicated on the assumption, I think, not only you get a Labour government, but you get a Labour majority government. We have to do these silly things at Eurasia Group, which is assigned percentages to our views. We have a 60% call that Labour will form a government with a majority next year and a 30% chance it'll be a minority government, which means collectively we see 90% chance of a Labour administration, either with a majority or not. So that's less than the New York Times had for Clinton winning the 2016. So the first thing to look for, I think, is beyond party conferences. Is there anything Sunak can do to turn this around and deliver a narrow path to victory? And I think the answer is probably no. But the key thing I'd really look for is whether there is more, given they look as if they're sleepwalking into a, a electoral annihilation, is there more policy risk they're willing to accept? And in particular, are they willing to do fancy stuff on fiscal policy, which means they're beginning that they're willing to accept fiscal and monetary policy not working in harmony, right? They're going to do a bunch of stuff on fiscal that makes the Bank of England's job harder, inflation harder, interest rate increases greater. I don't think that's what Sunak will do because he's been clear about the inflation challenge. But the conviction around the base case, i.e. Labour, which is key for UK EU, hangs on, you know, um, the Tories not being able to turn this around. And I think the fiscal question is key to the assessment of that. Um, assuming Labour wins, then I think, you know, the key signposts there would be they move very quickly and they move early to do all the kind of, you know, below the headline stuff we've talked about, the veterinary agreement, the mobility deals, two-way mutual recognition, all that kind of jazz. They move quick to do all that stuff. And then they, you know, so they try and effectively front run the TCA review. They don't say, oh, we're going to wait till 2025 or 2026 to do all this stuff. And we do it in the context of the TCA review, but they effectively front run it and they move quickly. So that would be the second signpost I point to. On the, on the Ukraine question, I think the most important thing to look for short term would be, you know, this strategic orientation that the 
council is now going through where they're going to articulate the key things they need to think about for the next mandate and high, how high in that context is this question of absorption capacity and in that context how high are these questions around the budget I think that kind of stuff is important because it will give a sense to me about how urgent the intra-EU reform drive is going to be I don't, I don't think they can take the decision about Ukraine enlargement without being more comfortable that if they're going to do it, Europe isn't going to collapse under its own weight. And the only way they'll have that perspective is if you've got a pretty mature idea already at the December Council about some answers to some of these really thorny questions, right? Like budget, governance, institutions. Do you have to do treaty change? They won't have the full answer to everything, but they need a bit more appetite and comfort. So I think understanding the debate in, at the leaders' level on absorption will provide some sense about the impetus for because it's less about Ukraine joining and the accession chapters. That's important. But there's an independent process on intra-EU reform. As Ukraine works through this process, you know, at what point do we begin to think about getting match fit for Ukraine's entry? And so that's an almost kind of independent process. And I think looking at the UCO state, you know, the strategic orientation for the next commission, how much of a priority it is, who gets the enlargement brief? You know, that's going to be a massive question, right, guys? If I'm right and this is the big portfolio in the next mandate, that goes to a French or a German commissioner if von der Leyen's not president. It goes to a big member state with big political weight because that's a key part of the next mandate. So looking at the college and who gets the enlargement brief won't go to Hungary. We know that. Can't go to Hungary, right? If it goes to some small member state or the Hungarians keep it, then I'm completely wrong. And you should you should not put this podcast out into the public domain. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that's absolutely great um, way of, of rounding this off and we can all watch this space. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast in 2025, um, <laughs> first. Um, but uh, there is one thing left to do on this podcast, even though we're slightly over time, and that is our bookshelf segment. So I'm obviously a junkie, Mark. So my problem is I'm reading stuff related to my work in my free time. And so the two books I'm reading right now that are amazing, obviously, uh, Anthony Seldon's Johnson at 10 or Johnson in 10 or whatever it is, that's really, really good. And I'm reading Ben Judah's This Is Europe, which is also phenomenal. So they're the two books I'd recommend people read through the summer if they've not already done so. Fantastic. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you have, please head to whatever platform you use to download this episode from and subscribe to future episodes and while you're there it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it helps bring other people to the podcast but for now from uh, midge Rahman, myself mark leonard and susie dennison it's goodbye the research for this podcast is kiara brika and the editor of this episode is mireya faro sarats mm-hmm.